So I want to invite you to get your Bible out and stand up for a moment with me. If you got your Bible, if you don't have one, we'll put these on the screen here. There are some Bibles in the seats underneath in front of you, and uh, you can borrow one of those if you'd like. But I want us to begin, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, but I want us to actually begin in chapter 3, verse 20, because right here in Ephesians 3.20 is it's kind of the middle of the letter. It's six chapters long, and right at the end of chapter 3, this verse kind of serves as the spine that everything's kind of tied into. As we prayed over and meditated on this book, we just really felt like we could camp out with this theme of more. And so I want us to read this together. Now I'm reading out of the NIV. That's what will be on the screen. If you have another translation, uh, you can just read this off of the screen with us, but we don't do this too often. Let's read this out loud together. Verse 20. Let's put it up there. Are you ready? Here we go. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now let me just tell you, God can do more. Not just more, immeasurably more. That's what this word tells us. And that's really the heart of the Apostle Paul. He wants this church, and I want our church to understand that there is so much more that God has for you. I mean, your salvation is more than enough for you to spend every Sunday for the rest of your life and every day giving God praise. Paul's saying there's more that God's done for you. And it's not just more for the sake of us having more, for the sake of us doing more, getting more, wasting more. It's more for the glory of God. And so here's the idea of this letter. It's more grace to you and more glory to God. That's what God wants today. More grace to you in your life and more glory to God. So let's pray to that end. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to just open up the bread of life. God, feed us from your word today. Convict us, Lord, if there's something in our lives that needs to be changed. And Holy Spirit, do what you always do. Call us upward in Christ Jesus. God, that we would leave this place today better than the way we came. In Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. 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 You can be seated. We're going to start, as I said, in Ephesians chapter 2. Pastor Chris took us up to about verse 9 in chapter 2, starting in the first chapter. And Paul starts this letter communicating the power of the gospel to save us and what it means to be saved, who we are in Christ. He gave us a, a beautiful uh, picture there of, of a picture of how much God cares in the image of the cross at salvation. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul begins to turn a corner. Look, if you're there in your Bible, Ephesians 2.10, he says this, after talking about all that God's done in saving us, he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul's saying, there's more. Paul's saying, not only did, did God save you and absolutely radically change your position in heavenly, 
in the heavenly places. He's just come out of the first few verses back in about verse six. He says, God seated you in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. So because you're saved today, you have a position right now in heaven. Not one you're going to get. You have one right now. The Bible says that God sees you as righteous in his sight. You say, yeah, you don't know what I did this weekend. Yeah, but God sees you as righteous positionally. You're there. Practically, it's still a work in progress. Amen? But positionally, we're there. But Paul is saying, look, not only did God give you a position in the heavenly realms, God strategically positioned you in the earth. He's created you to do good works. And that's going to lead us into this next section of Scripture that we're going to look at where Paul begins to communicate uh, how incredible the work of salvation is, not just in reconciling our relationships to God, but in reconciling our relationship with each other. God has done a work spiritually in salvation, but he's also done a work relationally and naturally in salvation. So I want us to look at these verses for a few moments and I want, you to, I want you to hear my heart out of Paul's heart today for this church. You know, 2013 uh, was a unique year for my family. My wife and I were in a place of um, just unsettledness in our spirits. I, I, I describe it as a holy discontent. Not a bad thing, just an uncomfortable thing. You ever been there with God? It was a holy discontent. And... and Part of that was this gnawing and this dawning of understanding that God was calling us to pastor a church. And we didn't know where that church was going to be. We didn't know uh, when it was going to happen. It just became very clear to us that God was calling us to lead a congregation. And so what I began to do as a spiritual exercise and as a little bit of an outlet for uh, waiting on the timing of the Lord is I just began to journal about that church. I just began to write about the church that I see in my heart. And one of the things that God spoke to me and that I remember writing down that year, uh, early in 2013, was that it would be a multi-ethnic and a multi-generational church. And I began to just think about that. And, and, and I believe this with all of my heart, that the church, the local church, ought to be a microcosm of heaven. Amen. When people look at the church... It ought to be a reflection of what heaven is going to be like. Any, any football fans here today? Anybody excited about preseason? Yeah, yeah. Pretty excited that football's back. I was thinking about this this week. You know, preseason is the preview to what the real season is going to be like. It's the time where we kind of look at the we look at our team and we kind of get an idea. Now, now you know when you're watching preseason, not everybody that's on the field is actually going to be on the team come real season, and it's kind of that way in the church too, that not everybody that's wearing the jersey is actually on the team, uh, but one day, Jesus is going to call his bride home, and, and the church is going to be everything that it was ever intended to be, and this is the, the preseason, and so this for us is the moment that we show the world what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like. We're still working out the playbook. We don't get it right all the time, but we're trying to be a microcosm of heaven. And God made that so clear to my heart that it would be a multi-ethnic and a multi-generational uh, multi church. And, and then 
God opened the door and made a way and called us to Wrightsville. And so when we got here, I, I just began to kind of study the demographics of Wrightsville. And I found out pretty quick, it's 98% white. <laughs> so I was like, okay, how does multi-ethnic fit into Whitesville? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too many weeks of being here that uh, Isaac and Nora and their family, their beautiful family from Cairo, Egypt, walked in on a Sunday morning. And uh, I was like, wow. You know, I realized I was just thinking black, white, Hispanic. <laughs> like, that was it. I, you know, multi, multi-ethnic was pretty, pretty limited in my vantage point. And, and so then I began to pray bigger and say, wow, God, you, you want to do something here that, that is, uh, you know, not limited by the statistics of our community. You want to do something that is motivated by your kingdom and by your purposes, and I began to pray about that. And, and as I pray about more and more, I, I realized, too, that, that diversity is more than just ethnicity. That yeah. this is actually a very diverse community. We have people of, of different financial brackets, people of different educational um, experience. Uh, we have all kinds of different ways that this community is diverse. Uh, political views, different ages. Uh, different social classes, all of that stuff is diversity. And I realized that, that God, what he was really speaking to me was this. At the heart level, he was telling me, Aaron, when, when you pastor a church, you need to push back from the, the inclination in, in our hearts to just focus on people that are like you. To just resist the urge of sameness of familiarity, to resist the, the draw to the mirror that we all experience in our life. What God was calling me to was to say that the church that I'm building is not a church that just looks like you. And, and if it looks like you, it won't look like my kingdom. Yeah. And so I need you to be invested in reaching people that are not like you, people that are different from you. And, and the reason I tell you that today at the onset of Ephesians 2 is because that thought, that idea is anchored in this text. That this is not just some desire of my heart, but I want you to see today out of this word from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus that, that this is the heart of God. It's a biblical conviction that the plan of God in salvation for man was to reconcile us to God, absolutely, but it was also to reconcile us to each other. Amen. So look at it with me. In verse 11 is where we'll begin. It says, therefore, now remember the therefore is because he's just told them what incredible things God has done in saving them. And because God has saved you and redeemed you and positioned you in the heavenlies, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, then he puts in parentheses here, which is done in the body by human hands, in case you didn't know. <laughs> he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in heaven and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Look at verse. Well, let's stop there. Verse 12 for the moment. Here, here's what Paul was saying. I, don't forget, 
that before you came to Christ, you were, you were cut off from God. But you weren't just cut off from God. You were cut off from God's people. And you were cut off from God's promises. And what he's communicating to us, they understood this. They, they just needed to be reminded sometimes of how far God had brought them. But they fully understood. But what we need to know is that before Christ came in and brought salvation, there was ethnic and cultural separation. In fact, the word he's going to use in a couple of verses is hostility. It was a tense environment. But then he says in verse 13, look at this. But now, come on, everybody say, but now. But now now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Aren't you glad that you have a but now in your story? That Paul was saying, look, your story, it may look different. You might have had different experiences. You might come from a different background, different families, different nationalities. But now. But now that you're in Christ, things have changed. The the things that that separated you from God and from God's people and from God's promises, those things are gone. But now you are in Christ and things have changed. Just think for a minute with me. Who's actually saying this? Because this guy's got some credibility. This is Saul of Tarsus. Now we call him the Apostle Paul, but... But we first met him in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was giving his testimony about God. Stephen was preaching, and the Bible says that the the religious fanatics got so angry with him that they drug him outside the city to stone him to death. And the Bible tells us in that moment that there was a man named Saul. He was there holding the garments of those who were throwing the stones. He was giving his approval of their murder of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. That's that's Saul, who the Bible goes on to say he left there and he went up to Damascus with letters from the authorities, giving him the right to go and to arrest and to persecute believers in Jesus and to drag them off to jail. This is a man who had absolute hatred for anything that had to do with the way of Christ. And yet he had a but now moment. While he was there on that Damascus road, Acts 9 tells us that Jesus showed up in that moment in a bright light, knocked him down off of his horse and appeared to him and saved him and restored him and called him to the ministry. And so Paul has a leg to stand on when he says, look, it used to be this way, but now it's different. It's different now. I don't have to live under that condemnation anymore. It's different now. I don't have to live under that stereotype anymore. It's different now. Paul, who's saying, I, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you who are far from God can be brought near by the blood of Christ. Right there in verse 13. And I love that verse because our mission statement as a church is this, leading people from where they are to where God wants them to be. So well, how, do, how do we do that? How do we lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be? Verse 13 tells us exact, exactly how. Look at it. He says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
It's by the blood of Christ. Can I just say to the church today that that if we're going to believe that God actually wants to do immeasurably more in our life and through our life in our generation, then the answer is not social reform. The answer is not legislative action. The, The answer is not more tolerance. The answer is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that brings those who were far near. That's the answer. That's the hope. And so what Paul is communicating, and what I don't want you to miss today, is the impact that this has in our daily life. More than just, or as much as it means spiritually, this is what it means naturally for us. He said, God's going to bring you near. He says in verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. See, here's what we tend to to think about and not go beyond the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he carried my sin there. He carried your sin there. And today, I have a relationship with God because the the penalty for my sin was paid for in the atonement. When Jesus died, he paid the price for my sin, and I can have a relationship with God. And we can all say amen to that truth. But I'm telling you today, God's done more than that. He's done more than that. These verses tell us that when Jesus went to the cross, not only did he destroy the barrier between you and God, verse 14 said he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So not just did he reconcile the relationship uh, with us and God, he said he divided those lines between people groups. He made the two groups one in the Greek that literally means, it doesn't mean that, that he just allowed the Gentiles to become a part of the Jewish group now. No, it means he made both things into one new thing. Something brand new that had never been before. Something that was only in Christ. All the divisions, all the distinctions are gone in Jesus Paul said God's broken down this barrier wall of hostility. I'm going to tell you, it was was hostility in their day and age. It was a hostile environment. In fact, Paul had to be thinking when he wrote this to the church at Ephesus, he had to be thinking about Acts chapter 21. Because, you know, we just came through a series called Shipwrecked where we looked at Paul's voyage from Rome to, or from Jerusalem to Rome And he spent that whole voyage in shackles. And even there in Rome, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians in shackles. And no doubt, he was remembering back before he left Jerusalem what happened there. Because what happened in Acts chapter 21 was that Paul brought some friends with him to Jerusalem. Look at it with me. Acts 21. Paul brought some friends with him to Jerusalem, and the accusation was this. He was accused of bringing a Greek man into the temple and defiling the holy temple. 
Now, here's what you need to understand about the temple, because when Paul said the barrier wall of hostility has been removed, he was talking about uh, spiritually and relationally what has happened. But he was also saying literally there is a barrier wall of hostility in the temple. And Paul was very well acquainted with it. Because in the temple, there was three courts. There was the innermost court. That was the place where all of the devout Jewish men were able to go and to worship God. And then outside of that innermost court was the inner court. And they would allow the women, the Jewish women, to come that far. But then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. And they were not allowed to go any farther. I mean, there were physical barriers of segregation. And and this stone wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner court had an inscription written on it. And the inscription was written in Greek and in Latin so that everybody could read it. Here's what it said. No one of another nation is to enter. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. That sign hung outside of the temple on a physical barrier wall. It didn't say you'll have to you'll have yourself to blame if death ensues. It says you'll have yourself to blame when death ensues. Like that's hostility. So Paul understood hostility because in Acts 21 while he's there in the temple Some people thought that he brought a Greek man past that wall, and they brought him into the temple. And here's what it says happened in verse 29 of Acts 21. It says, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Trophimus, he's from Ephesus. Look at what it says happened. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Look at the next verse. While they were trying to kill him, not while they were planning to kill him or thinking about it, it says they were actually trying in this moment to kill Paul for bringing somebody past that barrier wall. It says, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Can you imagine this? I mean, the whole city is now in an uproar. Why? Because somebody, they thought, brought a Gentile past the barrier wall. That's how hostile the segregation And the racism was in the first century of the church. That's how intense it was. So I can imagine that, you know, when the Ephesians get this letter from Paul and it says that that he has broken down the barrier wall, the dividing wall of hostility. I I, I can just imagine Trophimus probably chimed in when they read the letter in church said hostility. I mean, that's an understatement. You should have seen those people. I mean, it was intense. And this is the, the atmosphere that, that Paul is, is declaring the gospel has changed. And, and by the way, we know, we know it did change because we're here. Bunch of Gentiles worshiping in America. The gospel wasn't limited forever 
The gospel has the power to, to go beyond those barriers and those boundaries. And we, we often preach and celebrate that, that when Jesus hung on the cross and he said in a loud voice, it is finished. The Bible says the veil in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. And we know that that symbolizes for us that we can come near to God. Before, only the priest could go beyond the veil. He had to go and atone for the sins. But it was a, a demonstration that God was saying, I have, I have removed the barrier for you to come to God. But I'm declaring to you today out of Ephesians that God has done more. Not only did he rip the veil, he also broke down the walls. That in the church, the barrier wall of hostility is destroyed in the body of Christ. It's to be utterly dismantled by the finished work of Jesus. And look at the, the, the last part of verse 15. It says his purpose in doing this was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Now, now the word for new here doesn't mean, doesn't mean a new point in time, like I'm starting something new. No, when he says he wanted to create a new humanity, what he's saying is this is new in the sense that it brings into the world a new kind or a new quality of a thing that never existed before. This is brand new, what God is doing. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. That at salvation, there's something brand new that God is doing. He's not just reshaping or retooling or modifying your life. He's doing a brand new thing. And I can't help but wonder when, when Paul wrote that to the Corinthians, if he wasn't thinking about the church at Ephesus, this church that had been so impacted by divisions. Because just one verse earlier there, in 2 Corinthians, before he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Paul said these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 16. He said, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And I just ask you, can you say that today? Can you say, I regard no one from a worldly point of view? Because if you can't, then you need to ask God to show you more today, more of, of the, the finished work of Christ. To say, to say God, I, I recognize in this moment that I haven't, I haven't tapped in to the fullness of your promises. I haven't come as near as you wanted me to come to God and to his people and to his promises. You know, we, we don't have to look very far in American history to see that we have our own boundaries of hostility. We can look back a century ago to the segregation that took place in America. You know, my family and I were just down in St. Augustine this last week in Florida, and I was, I was touched by a monument in the middle of the park there in the center of town to the foot soldiers. It's a monument honoring those young men and women, mostly college-age students, black and white, who had sit-ins, and they marched in with Martin Luther King for desegregation. And, and one of the things they were celebrating was those that participated in the kneel-ins. A lot of us know about the sit-ins, where they sat in restaurants and waited to be served. Where they said no blacks allowed, but 
The Neolands was more of a stinging rebuke, not to the culture, but to the community of faith. Where these young people would go and they would just kneel outside of all white churches on Sunday morning. It's just a simple, passive way of saying, are we welcome to come and worship our Savior in this place? That is a sad mark on American history, but we know that that pointed to the real issue and the issue that Paul was dealing with, that it's not really a societal thing. It's an issue of the heart. And sure, we've seen that the effects of it in culture, but it's a thing of the heart. That while, while the churchgoers were not the, the legislators and the ones making the rules, by not opening the doors of God's house, they were revealing what was inside of them. It wasn't just about the laws. It was the heart of God's people. And, and whether it's something that happens in our country and in our day or something in days gone by or a barrier wall in the temple in Jerusalem... What we have to do as a people of God, when we look at the word of God, is we have to ask the question, God, is there, is there any invisible barrier wall of hostility in my heart? Is there, is there anything that is unseen that is equally as evil in your eyes? Is, is there any limit to my embrace with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because Paul is communicating that what God did was not only supernaturally spiritual, it was naturally powerful change. And if there's any place that's going to get it right, it's got to be the church. It's got to be the church. It's got to be us. So Paul goes on and he says, consequently, in verse 19, you're no longer foreigners and strangers but your fellow citizens with God's people and also your members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Paul is painting a picture right now of another wall that's being built. He's saying there's two things that are happening right now. There's a wall that's being broken down. This barrier wall of hostility is being destroyed. But at the same time, God is building a wall. God is building a temple that his glory can dwell in. And the bricks that make up this wall are the people of God. It's you and me. And he says, we're, we're put together. See, when, when you came to Christ, you didn't just uh, become a follower of God. You became a part of the family of God. And, and there, ought, there ought to be evidence in your life that you can look at and say, wow, if I were to remove myself from the family of God, it would impact people. Because there's people that are touching my life. There's people that I'm, I'm influencing. I'm a part now of something that God is building. And then he ends the thought with this, this verse 22. He says, and to him and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You're being, I'm being built together. In other words, this building's not complete yet. It's still under construction. We're being built together to house the presence of God. I want to, I want to tell you, Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples 
because you love one another. There's nothing more compelling than the unity of the body of Christ for the gospel's sake. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 133, he said, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Verse three goes on to say, that's the place where the Lord bestows his blessing, life forevermore, on the place where the people of God are in unity with one another. That's what he's building here. He's saying, don't just... Don't just see that something's been broken down. See that something is being built up. See that I'm calling you into something. Not just a position in heaven, but a place in the earth. A purpose in the earth. So Paul gives us this beautiful picture of restoration, of racial reconciliation, of barriers being removed and, and a temple being built up. And then in chapter three, verse one, he says, for this reason, because of that, because of what God's done for you in heaven and what he's doing through you in the earth, for this reason, and he's about to say, for this reason, I kneel down and pray for you. But he, he gets sidetracked a little bit when he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. It's almost as if Paul looks back down and he sees the shackles that are on his wrist. It's almost as if, like, in his mind, he goes to the setting where they're reading this letter and, and they know that he's still in prison and they're wondering how he's doing it. And so Paul just has to kind of go on a little rabbit trail here, like preachers often do. And, and from verse 1 to verse 13, he kind of derails from his reason, for this reason. He's going to pick it up in verse 14 again, for this reason. But he goes on to assure them that, that I may be shackled, but the gospel's not shackled. I, I may be a prisoner, but I'm not a prisoner to Rome. I'm a prisoner to the gospel. That, that I've been given an incredible assignment to present the mystery of God. He called it the mystery in chapter one. He called it the mystery here again in chapter two. And in verse six, he tells us what the mystery is. It's, it's no secret to us. Look at verse six in chapter three. He said, this is the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In other words, all those things back in chapter 2, verse 12, that he said, remember, you didn't have. You didn't have a relationship with God. You didn't have a relationship with God's people, and you didn't have access to God's promises. Paul's saying, here's the mystery that God's given me the grace of sharing, that in Christ, you have all of those things. He goes on in, in verse 7 to say, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me. He says down in verse 12, look at verse 12 with me, chapter three, in him, Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's, that's the incredible mystery. And that's the simplicity of the gospel, that we, we can approach God with confidence. Now, now, maybe you've heard that a lot in your life and in being in the setting of living in a free country that we live in and having access to the gospel. Maybe that doesn't seem like much, but, but that was astounding 
to the first century church. That troubled them. That bothered them. And I don't just mean like the, the common churchgoer. I mean the leaders of the church. You go to the very top tier of leadership and, and you look at the life of Peter, the apostle who, who walked with Jesus, who preached on the day of Pentecost. And you can see in his life, he struggled with the simplicity of this gospel. He struggled with this idea that through faith in him, anyone can approach God with freedom and confidence. That's why in, in Acts chapter 10, when God told him to go preach in the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, he didn't want to do it. Three times God had to give him a vision to communicate his intentions. He did not want to do it. And then when he finally did do it and the Holy Spirit was poured out and everybody got saved, Peter told people how great it was. And the Bible says the church was furious. They were furious. So five years later, they had this big council meeting, Acts 15. And when you read that chapter, you realize the, the whole debate is, is about these uncircumcised people. It's what Paul's writing about here in Ephesians 2 and 3. Are these people really able to boldly approach the throne of God with confidence? Do they have access through faith alone without all of our religious steps? All of our cultural practices, all the things that are familiar, is, is, that, is that really okay? And we, we see the church struggling, struggling with this. In fact, it was in Acts 10, while Paul was standing there preaching to, or not even preaching, yeah, just talking to Cornelius. In verse 28 of Acts 10, he said, he said to them, you are all well aware that it is against our law. This is a legal man. This is how hostile it was. It's against the law for a Jew to associate with a or visit a Gentile. Then he says this, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, unclean. God showed him. That's, that's what had to happen. That's what ha has to happen for everyone. God has to show us. God has to reveal to us. As you move to the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gets back to his purpose for starting in verse 1, and he says again, for this reason... Before the Father I kneel, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its names. And he begins to pray for the church. And in that prayer, he says, I pray that you would be rooted and established in love. That thought of being established is something that we've taken as a, as a word for our church this whole year. That God wants to establish us. He wants to... He wants to mature us. He wants to give us deep roots. He wants to build some things in us. He wants to begin some things in us this year. But now today we're looking at those words in this context. And, and I want to challenge you today to let God establish something in your life. In verse 17, he said, I pray that you being rooted and established in love 
may have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. What I mean, Paul's praying, but at the same time, he's just unloading incredible theology in his prayer life. And what he's saying is, if, if you're going to be rooted and established in the love of God, if you're going to have the power, you have to have that in the context of being with all of the people. In other words, you'll never understand. You'll never grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of God all by yourself. It's not going to work that way. That's why you have to dwell with Christ in your heart, in power, with God's people. And then you can know, he says in verse 19, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, this question probably doesn't even need to be asked, but how many of you would like to be filled to the full measure of all of God. I mean, that's what we want. We want all that God has for us. We want the more. But what Paul is communicating in this moment is that that more is something that is only realized in the context of the body of Christ. And then he follows those words with the scripture that you read at the beginning of this message. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more. He's able to do it. More than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. God wants to do more. We have to, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to search our heart in our lives. Because here, here's the tendency in me. I, I, I can only speak for me. But I'll be honest with you and tell you, when, when I see the extremes in the media and in the news, and I see the cultural divisions, and, and I see all the stuff that goes on, it's really easy for me to distance myself from that and say, that's not, that's not me. And, and I mean it. That's not me. I, I, I don't feel that way. I don't... I don't have anything against anyone. But when we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and ask ourselves, God, is there, is, is there any invisible signs, any barrier walls that I've put up in my life that maybe it's not something you're against, it's just the fact that you haven't lived in a way that you're for it. And what I, what I want you to see today, church, is that the church that, that, that God is building, the church that he wants us to be, is not just a church that's positioned with God in heaven. It's a church that's strategically positioned to have an incredible influence in the earth. Amen. The way we become that is by not just seeing the wall or the veil rip, but seeing the walls come down. And, and here's a way you can evaluate your heart today. Here's how I evaluated mine. Not what am I for, what am I against, because I, I genuinely don't feel like I'm, I'm against anyone. But you can ask yourself this question. L look at the relationship circles in your life and ask yourself, is, is everybody that I'm pursuing like me? Do they look like me? Do they talk like me? 
They make about the same money as me. Are they about as educated as I am? Or are you, are you pursuing the beautiful tapestry of a colorful and diverse kingdom? You know, I was in a store years ago with my daughters and one of them picked up a kaleidoscope and they were just looking at it. They were saying how cool this is. We're looking at that kaleidoscope. And they said, Dad, look at this, look at this. And I said, wow, let me show you something. Point it towards the light. And all of a sudden, they, they took that kaleidoscope up, and all the color started to shine through. And all the brilliance of the light shined through. And I said, now look, move it, turn it. And they began to see that thing move. And, and that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. When we don't just say, oh, wow, thank you, Lord, for my salvation. But when we all turn towards the light and we allow the light of God to shine through the beauty and the diversity of the giftings and the anointings and the cultures of the kingdom, it all begins to shine through our lives and radiate the glory of God. That's what God wants to build in us. So I want to pray for you today. And before we pray for the church collective, let me just make a simple invitation you might be here today and, and you don't feel like you are in relationship with God, God's people, or God's promises. As Paul said, I want to say to you, but now. In other words, you don't have to wait another day. You don't have to wait another moment. You don't have to take a class. You don't have to read the Bible. The Bible says, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. By the way, Jesus isn't dying on the cross again. He's already shed his blood. Once was enough. And so all you have to do is put faith in that finished work. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, you can by just putting faith in the finished work of Jesus and just saying, Jesus, I believe that you're the savior of the world. I believe in you, Jesus as my savior. And I want to ask you to bow your head with me right now. And, and if that's you today, just pray that simple prayer. Outlet doesn't have to be complicated. It's a starting point. Just pray right now. Say, Jesus, I believe you're the savior of the world. And just tell him, Jesus, I receive you today as the Lord of my life. I receive you as the Lord of my life. And this is the moment of supernaturally new things coming into being. Something new is happening right now. God is restoring your relationship with him in Christ right now. And in this moment, if you just prayed that prayer and just said, Jesus, I receive you as Lord. In this moment, you are as saved as anybody in this room. And not only are you as saved, you're as much a part of the family of God as anybody has ever been. And not only that, but you have access to every promise that is in Christ Jesus, as much as anyone else does. You're in through Christ, but now the old is made new and you've been brought near through Jesus by faith. In Jesus' name, it's settled in the heavenlies. Amen. Church, I want to ask.